Uh, We're reading from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's entitled God's Promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place where the tent is my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I have removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, sovereign Lord is for a mere human? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders 
by driving out nations and their gods from your people, from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we've said today, we, th- we thank you again for your word. Thank you that we can come and be refreshed by your gospel, to encounter your gospel, to encounter your kingdom through your son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that as uh, we explore this passage here in Second Samuel, uh, that we would see the wonder of your kingdom and be drawn to, to what, you've, uh, what you've secured for us. Primarily, it's for you, yourself, knowing you as our great God. I pray, Father, that, uh, yeah, your Holy Spirit would stir within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if in, you can think of a moment in your life that you've kicked back in a comfortable chair, favorite beverage in hand, and said, ah, life is good. When was the last time you did that? Maybe you could have been on a beach, a boat, or at a buffet dinner. Maybe a beer or ad, a beer or soft drink ad comes to mind. When everyone is having so much fun in the ad, then everything suddenly goes all dramatic for a second, slows down, and they take that first glorious sip of that sugary delight, bringing utter blissfulness to the person drinking it. Much of our modern day life today is consumed with pursuing a good life, whatever that is for you, with plenty of books, TV series, or shows quite literally named The Good Life. And what one person deems as good may be different to the next person, but that doesn't really matter because our culture tells us that's kind of the way it's meant to be. We are all ought to create meaning for ourselves. Good things in life are important. But what's, according to our culture, most important is perhaps the meaning that you and I attribute to these things. You do you, as some would say. Do whatever makes you happy. It's up to you to define good and chase it to your heart's content. For many, life then is meant to be self-determined. Work, uh, walk out your own destiny 
And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Because to do so would to violate humanity at the highest level. Denying yourself and not expressing yourself the way you're meant to do. On the surface, such an approach seems plausible, reasonable, even attractive and desirable. And why not view life from such an angle? Modern life offers so much to us, doesn't it? Well, except maybe toilet paper and corn chips at the moment, but that's beside the point. I mean, civilization has developed to such an extent that, that we have so much at our fingertips. I mean, think of the engineering that goes into our car, our house, or our phone. Amazing technologies that weren't even dreamed of a few hundred centuries ago. When it comes to the Christian faith, though, we find that Scripture comes at this topic of the good life from a different angle. A new perspective, a challenging perspective, yet also an utterly delightful perspective. According to our passage before us today, we find out that it all has to do with God and his kingdom. And whether you and I are a part of that kingdom. In this way, our passage challenges us to define the good life using God's definitions rather than our own. And by accepting God's kingdom on his terms, we truly have the opportunity to experience the true good life. A life beyond anything in this world, for it comes from a source outside of this world. When we consider God's kingdom this morning... The first thing that we're going to explore is, what is this kingdom like? What characterizes it? What makes it so marvelous and desirable to have, to be a part of? So as we consider this, the first thing that we learn from our passage is that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And as an everlasting kingdom, unlike anything in this life, it will not pass away. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most significant passages in all the Old Testament. Not because other passages are not important, but because so much of what's happened before it and what happens after this chapter has this chapter as its foundation. A bit like a ship's rudder or a concrete foundation in a home, it really sets the course for the rest of redemptive history as it unfolds from this point onwards. At this particular point in time, David's kingship had begun to be established. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence amongst God's people, had come to Jerusalem, the nation's capital. And the nation of Israel was beginning to experience peace from war from all the surrounding nations. It's at this moment that David has a light bulb moment. An idea comes into his mind. A desire pierces his heart. And he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so David desires to build a house, a temple for God, something that's fitting in honor of him. It all sounded very reasonable. And so the king's prophet, Nathan, doesn't even bat an eyelid and just goes, yeah, right, sounds like a good idea. 
but God thought otherwise. Uh, you can turn that slide off, that's fine, as we wait for the next one. God instead questions David. He says, up until this point, have I ever said to my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? No, God hadn't done this. Although the temple would one day be built, amazingly here, God declares and shows David, reveals to him his own building project plans. And at its heart, what we see here is that God give David a promise. The core of this promise, the great promise, can be found in verses 11 to 17, where it shows there God's unbreakable commitment and pledge to bring about his kingdom on earth. A kingdom that's for God's people. A kingdom that centers on David's house, his dynasty, and the future kingdoms that comes from his family line that would rule over God's nation. God establishes here a special father-son relationship with David and Israel's future kings. God's covenant love for them is said to never fail. Such a kingdom is described here as an everlasting kingdom. Unlike the pagan nations of David's day, or any other human kingdom or nation ever since, this kingdom is said that it will be established forever and never pass away. The everlasting nature of God's kingdom makes it an extremely attractive thing. When we think about it, uh, our culture desires this everlasting nature in so many ways. In one episode of Grand Designs, uh, one man, he wanted to design his dream home, as they do in every episode, but this man did so in a flood risk area. And so to alleviate uh, the risk of a one in a 500 year flood event, he decided to build uh, the flood, uh, to build a flood proof home, as we see up there. He literally built most of his house on the second story. With the breakdown of his 30-plus-year marriage and only limited years of life left to live, he wanted something that would last, something that would endure. But tragically for the man, he probably most likely won't live for that one in 500-year event when it actually does occur. But, you know, he's not the only one alone in this pursuit. Uh, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, one of the world's richest people, He's invested in anti-aging research, seemingly in the pursuit of immortality, or at least a few extra years to spend all his dough. Equally, uh, the founder of Evernote, another tech company, Stepan Patrikov, he built his whole uh, company on the philosophy that our memories needed to live on. If somehow we can capture and store all our memories, that's kind of a way of of us carrying on beyond our life and being preserved. But when, when all these things are compared to God and his everlasting kingdom, all these things are truly fickle, futile, and foolish. Why? Because only God's kingdom is eternal. All these things in life will pass away. 
I wonder what you ascribe most value to in your life. Our passage confronts us with the reality that none of these early earthly things that we have will last the test of time. Our possessions, our health, our relationships, our families, our marriages, our very own earthly lives, none of it will last in this life. They all eventually will fade away in one form or another. Even whole countries or empires don't last. With our own Western culture seeming to fray at the edges at the moment. We can give things in this life all the value and meaning that we want. But in the end, it all fails and slips through our hands. Much like trying to hold on to a handful of sand. Only God and his kingdom are foolproof in this regard able to jump the gap between this life and the next and carry us and carry on into eternity. Surely the good life then must be measured by either our participation in or lack of participation in God's kingdom. A kingdom that is like a solid foundation that will last the test of time. As we consider David's own kingdom, and the ones after him. At first, it kind of didn't seem, uh, as we look at it as a whole, sorry, it didn't seem to be the case as we look back now in history. Uh, David's son, King Solomon, he started off well. Solomon did build a temple for God, and his kingship was very peaceful at the time. But by the end of his life, he had fallen into sin and idolatry. And the kingdom of Israel had split off and divided into two separate kingdoms, the north and south. And then after Solomon, except for a few godly kings along the way, each successive king got worse and worse and fell deeper and deeper into sin. The kings at the time led God's people more astray in the process. It all came to a head when the nations from the north eventually came and wiped out Israel and Judah from the face of the earth and leveled the temple in the process. I mean, things got so bad that the prophet Jeremiah records in chapter 22, verse 30, regarding the current king at the time, King Keniah. He says this, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. I mean, it's a pretty bleak picture. It's basically saying David's dynasty is gone. It's at at an end. But God showed that not all hope was lost. Even Even though things were very bad afterwards, after David, in Israel's day, there would be still hope for someone to redeem David's fallen dynasty. A hope that began uh, began with uh, Zerubbabel from David's family line. We read about this in Haggai. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. David's line was beginning to be restored. The New Testament opens 
with a declaration that redemption comes through no other than Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who redeems David's line. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33, Christ's identity is revealed to Mary, the mother of Jesus, through the angel Gabriel. It says there, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Excuse me. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the fulfillment. In him comes God's kingdom, God's everlasting kingdom. But as we consider from our passage what God's kingdom is like, we find something more. Not only is God's kingdom an everlasting, eternal kingdom, but we also learn from our passage that it is a blessed kingdom. We learn that it's blessed not only because of what's in it, but because of who is in this kingdom. God describes this king of David as as one where he and all God's people will be firmly planted, a place of rest, where God's people are rescued and free from all hostile forces, much like they were redeemed from slavery out of Egypt many years before. Not only that, David also gained celebrity-like status, being promised to be great, his name greatly known amongst those of the great name of the great ones of the earth. If Time magazine existed back then, I'm sure David would have made the front cover. I mean, David was so blown away by all this that he praised that God would fulfill his promise and follow through with blessing him and his house forever. But did you notice in our passage who? Who's in this kingdom? I mean, not only is this kingdom full of God's people who can now dwell safely and secure together in this amazing peace and blessing, but God is there. God is what makes this kingdom so special. Uh, A little while ago, one of the things that were trending, I don't know if people still do it, uh, is uh, hashtag blessed they put on their social media posts. I'm not sure if anyone here did this, but when someone experienced something that's utterly satisfying and delighted them, they would feel compelled to say they were, they were hashtag blessed. All the while posing for another selfie with a small puppy of some kind in the picture as well, I'm sure. But true blessing is not measured by what we have or experience in this life. Don't get me wrong, many things of this life are good, they're God-given gifts. And many of these things we will enjoy in some form or another in eternity. But the ultimate blessing, fellow Christians, is God, having God. Having the blessing of God's presence dwelling richly in you and your life. The whole point of God's kingdom, of establishing this Davidic kingship, was for God to dwell amongst his people. 
we read through our passage in your own time, you might pick up on how personable, how relational the language here is here. Beaming with God's love that he has for his people, for David, for his children. This means when it comes to our culture's uh, focus on self and self-determination, that it's missing the crucial ingredient that truly makes life fulfilling and satisfying to the fullest. God himself and his fatherly love. Have you experienced this love for yourself? Like a one in 500 year flood event that completely washes over your soul and consumes you. When you really have it and know it, it trumps everything else that you might have. All else, else compa- um, pales in comparison to it. Speaking of this amazing love of God, Paul in Ephesians 3 he desires that the Holy Spirit might bless all his people with a rich experience of it. Where he says there from verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you know this immense, bottomless well of love for yourself? If you are his child, the the same personal love and affection that he expressed to David is the same language of love that he expresses to his children through Jesus. God says, you are my child. That's what he calls out to us in our souls. I love you. You are mine. So we've seen this morning that God's kingdom is an everlasting and blessed kingdom. Blessed with the presence of the everlasting God. That's what's at the heart of God's kingdom. I want to consider for a moment this morning, not only have we looked at what is God's kingdom like, I want to ask for a moment how How do we experience this for ourselves? How do we experience such a kingdom? And so this is the last thing that I want to spend a few moments exploring this morning. What we find is that it's something that God, not us, establishes and ushers into existence. David's desire to build God a a house, a temple, it seemed to be logical and the right thing to do. But as innocent as this suggestion might have been, God's response grants us great insight into the inner working of God's heart and his plan of salvation. Our whole passage screams out to us with one pervasive truth. It says, blessing, salvation, God's kingdom is God's initiative. He wills it. He plans it. He promises it. He brings it about. He accomplishes it. Not us. It's all God's doing. He gets the credit. 
when it comes to our culture's belief and identity based on self, you could say that this brings the final nail to the coffin, as it were, to this belief and building your life on yourself. Not only will the things of this life evaporate from our hands and the ultimate meaningless be ultimately meaningless without God and His loving presence, but now self-absorbed, sinful humanity can't come up with a solution, can't find a lasting solution, a truly good life by ourselves. And seeking ultimate satisfaction and joy outside of God, which is sin, we have dug a big hole for ourselves and buried ourselves in it. By ourselves, we are quite literally, by definition, utterly hopeless without God. But where there is hopelessness, thanks be to God who provides us with the blessed hope. The ultimate reason why God's kingdom is a place of rest is not just because hostility and war won't be there anymore, but because we will gain, through Jesus, an ultimate rest. Rest from having to try and save ourselves to come up with a solution ourselves. Rest from having to prove yourself to God, from having to try and make yourself good enough for God, to try and make your own temple house house in your heart and life that is pure enough now for God to dwell once more in. Instead, God provided a way through his son Jesus, his own very son whom he is called his beloved, whom he loved. All other sons in times past failed. Adam, who in Luke 3 is called the first son of God, he failed in his calling to live in that perfect relationship with God. Back in Exodus 4.22, all of Israel collectively are called God's firstborn son. It says there, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. But because of their persistent sin and rebellion against God, they too were not able to fill this calling on their life. Only through Christ, God's son from eternity, could God's kingdom come to earth. His name says it all. He is named Emmanuel, God with us. Before his death on the cross, Pilate asked Jesus in John 18, he says, are you king of the Jews? To which Jesus soon replied, my kingdom is not of this world. Revealing the heavenly kingdom that he was bringing about, unlike anything that we have here on this world. Rather than using force, And power to secure this kingdom and brute force, Jesus showed himself a servant king who laid down his life for his people. And so through his death on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus secured salvation and God's blessing for God's people. He did what we could not do. He became a perfect sacrifice for sin removing that great barrier that lay between us and God, our sin, that stopped us from experiencing God's fatherly love. Salvation is from God. He gives it. He wills it. He he brought it into existence through Jesus. God only calls us 
to respond to what he's done in Jesus. He calls us to repent and believe in his son. And by doing so, he will grant us his eternal love through his spirit. In John 14, from verse 16 to 18, Jesus declared there, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, as God's people, through the Holy Spirit, who dwells in all God's people, in Romans 8, 14, Paul declares us all to be sons of God then. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We become, through Jesus, part of God's family, part of his kingdom. So what then is the true good life for us? It's believing in Jesus, in God's Son. It's being willing to give up your life and dedicating your life to this servant king. A king who willingly died for you. Who died to secure an eternal place for you in his father's house. Who grants you the most precious thing. God's fatherly love and and affection. His life, his blessing, his salvation. Turn then from the lure of trying to seek a good life according to our world standards. One that will fade and perish. A life that looks good on the outside but is rotten at its core. Come and find true in God and following him as a disciple of Jesus. Knowing what you truly have in his kingdom. An eternal, blessed kingdom. Treasure that won't fade or perish as we wait now patiently for Christ's triumphant return. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you that you did what we could not. And Father, we confess that so often we, we try to be good enough for you and ourselves. We try and live up to the mark, but we can't. But we thank you that Jesus, through Jesus, you've secured salvation for us. Father, thank you that you went above and beyond and did what we could not to give us the blessing of you, of having you in our life, of being given true life through Jesus. And thank you that you have secured for that for us for all of eternity, giving us a life beyond this life. And Father, as we consider how precious it is to be called one of your children and to know your fatherly love. I pray, Father, that you'd help us respond in great thankfulness and that we might respond in in repentance and faith, that we would dedicate ourselves to you, not holding on tightly to the things of this world, but holding tightly onto, onto you and your son Jesus and the promise of eternal life with you. Father, we want to praise you and thank you and give you all the glory this day. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.